not every surprise is man-delicious. This week, you get to hear us talking about council lowering speed limits again, which we're pretty sure they've already done like 20 times, but they don't seem to be getting any lower. Plus, in an election time miracle, a former mayor known for shutting things down, like the Coliseum when he negotiated Roger's place, shows up to save the Coliseum. Gas meat lighter. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 106, where we're doing Edmonton News in a week where no one really cares about Edmonton News. It is all about a country that is not ours. Mac, how's your election week been going? Pretty much the same as everybody else, I guess. Election night was a bit of a letdown this year. I went to bed and woke up and the numbers were the same. And I guess that's to be expected. We were warned that that would be the case. But we're recording this on Thursday night, and I would just like to know the result. Well, you don't get to. On to the rapid fire, which, according to my Twitter feed, I do live in the U.S. now. So here's some pieces of news you might need to know today. We didn't fact check any of these, but they sounded right. So that's good enough for us. The conservative-controlled Supreme Court announced today that they've ordered an emergency stay on mail delivery in the U.S., with the majority opinion ruling, quote, a key tenant of public service is lack of partisanship. The clear Biden skew in mail-in ballots, especially in Pennsylvania, has shown that USPS is unable to keep its partisan agenda out of its service, and thus we must halt operations, end quote. We reached out to the executives at the Postal Service for comment, but were unable to reach anyone as they had all just today accepted lucrative positions at Amazon. Despite the tens of millions of votes being counted across the country this week, Nevada has been struggling to certify the results, having only counted around a million votes as we record this Thursday evening. State officials in a statement reassured the nation that the vote totals, which may play a crucial role in selecting the president, will be available as soon as possible. The Secretary of State explained the slow progress by pointing to a border restriction that has been in place since the 1988 release of the road trip movie Rain Man starring Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman, which prompted the state to prohibit entry by anyone able to count. Big news from Twitter today as a prominent verified user on the service confirms that this is all your fault. In a 50-tweet thread, the user went on to explain that you, the listener, are personally responsible for the series of events that has culminated in this, and your continued attempts to explain why you're not responsible are, in fact, part of the problem. The thread concluded by reminding you that this is not the first time that you've done this, but it will probably be the last because you've really gone and put the final nail in the coffin now, haven't you? Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. And this episode is brought to you by the Alberta Forest Products Association, who has helpfully sent along this clip. Alberta's forests matter to all of us. That's why Alberta's forest industry works to keep them sustainable now and for future generations. By planning 200 years ahead, helping control the spread of fire and disease, and planting and nurturing two trees for every one harvested, we keep our forests standing strong. To learn more about how our forests take care of us and how we take care of them, visit loveabforests.com. So we've done two or three episodes about council voting to change speed limits, and all of them in the episodes we justify how what council was doing at the time was real and material and pushing things forward. But speed limits are still material the same, and council, again, voted today 9-3 to change the speed limit. 
Is this the last time we're going to see it? What happened today? Hopefully this is the last time that we have to hear about it for a little while, maybe at least until they start doing the installation of the new speed limit signs. Uh, But essentially you'll recall that it was back in March that council first approved uh, a lower speed limit. They decided against a 30 kilometer per hour speed limit, opted to go for 40 kilometers an hour. Then they said we had to get some bylaws back, of course. So those went to first reading in June. And this is now final reading, second and third reading for that bylaw. Council has, as you pointed out, approved that change nine to three. Uh, What this means is that there will be a 40 kilometer per hour speed limit in about 400 neighborhoods, as well as in some high pedestrian areas like White Avenue and Jasper Avenue. The city is going to be swapping out uh, about 1,500 signs, and they're going to do that at a cost of $1.1 million, which is less than what they originally estimated. They had originally said it would be about $2.5 million. Uh, They were able to make it cheaper, I guess, Um, but this change will take place by uh, next summer. So that's when we should see that happen. So one thing that caught my eye on that was just the 9 to 3, and I was curious, you were very involved in this, Troy, the previous times that it went to council. 9 to 3 sounds different than the last vote? Well, not only because 9 plus 3 equals 12, and there are 13 members of council. True. Mobango was absent for this. And no, the no votes were not all the same. If we assume Mobango voted no, as he did in the past, the other no vote that was on the initial reading was Tony Katarina, who changed his vote to a yes vote. Normally, that would give you a lot of pause, but Tony Katarina went at length to describe his motivation during the meeting, and I thought it was pretty intense and pretty surprising. When Katarina went to speak to the motion at the end when he was saying how he was going to vote, he basically, no holds barred, without saying the counselor's name, took some shots at Mike Nickel, who he said was, quote, very disappointing. The context of this, Mike Nickel as Mike Nickel does, was posting memes on Facebook and Twitter saying, you know, council, nanny state, lowering to 40 kilometers an hour, photo radar doesn't work, this is just a cash grab, et cetera, et cetera, a bunch of misinformation, right? and encouraging people to go to the public hearing. Tony Katarina took significant issue with that, saying, quote, I'm really disappointed with some today, and I want to really apologize to the speakers that came forward that were more or less coerced into asking the questions that they asked, And those questions should have come from counsel, end quote. Mm, Right there. At one point in Katarina's five minutes, Don Iveson had to step in and say, hey, counselor, let's lay back a little bit. I see the connections (laughs) that you're making. And like you could tell everyone was on board with the point that Tony Katarina was making. He was fired up and they would have said it, but he was already on the case. A lot of the counselors after Katarina echoed his points It's one thing for a counselor like Mike Nickel to be opposed to something and encourage constituents to speak at a meeting. That skirts the line between having an open mind at a public hearing, but, you know, counselors are allowed to have opinions. Right. But Mike Nickel, as Mike Nickel does, didn't ask questions of administration, didn't debate during the meeting. He just sat silently before voting no, which I think really does a disservice to all the constituents of Ward 11. And Tony Katarina felt the same way, quite clearly. Well, good on Katarina for calling Nickel out. Uh, so we know why he voted no. He always votes no. Uh, Councillor Zadok also voted no. Why did he vote no this time? That's consistent with last time as well, right? Councillor Zadok, you know, in many ways is a Mike Nickel light. He said some justifications like, you know, it 
lowering speed limits might give a false sense of security or because of the pandemic, I don't think this is a priority, but you have to get at the root cause of his concerns is that he wants cars to go fast and he hates this. When he was campaigning, he campaigned hard against school zones, not because of confusion, but because he thought 50 was the appropriate speed in front of a school. Uh, That was his election platform and that's what he got elected on. So I don't know that he necessarily feels that he has to change now. And I think he also said that he thought lowering speed limits would potentially give a false sense of security to pedestrians. Is there any evidence for that? Well, like most things John Zadok says, no, there is no evidence of that. Uh, What lowering speed limits does do is give security to pedestrians because we know in Edmonton from our plenty of trials that when we lower the speed limit, the median speed does decrease and physics would tell us that lower speeds increases safety for pedestrians. So the sense of safety, yes, it would grant that to pedestrians. The false sense of safety, I think Zadok is taking some liberty with the facts there. Got it. So I mentioned uh, off the top of this item that the cost is now less than it was previously estimated to install the signs. And both you and I have complained, I guess, about the expense of this in the past. Do you know why it's so much lower now? My understanding, this is a bit of hearing things and a bit of speculation. So, you know, grain of salt and city staff, if you're listening to this and I'm wrong, please let me know. Come on the show. Let's talk about it. But my understanding is that there have been discussions and fights within administration about what level of signage is actually required. Mm. The more studious and the more conservative, conservative in terms of reading the law and being very judicious, might say you need a sign on every block where the speed is different from the default. Others might disagree and might say things like, you know, you only need to post 40 kmh at the entrance to the neighborhood. Part of this is also the mechanism by which this law is passed. So it was a charter bylaw that sets the speed limit everywhere in Edmonton to 40 kilometers an hour. That's the default speed limit. So we only theoretically need to sign the roads that are 50. And because a lot of roads in Edmonton are actually 60, or a lot of roads are already signed at 50, that does reduce the need for signs by quite a bit. It does decrease the number of 40 kmh signs, which means the education component and the broad communication becomes more important with that decreased cost. Well, fortunately, it feels like there's been lots of awareness about this issue over the last two years. So people should know lower speed limits are coming and we should see those signs and the changes take effect uh, in the summer. Stephen Mandel, former mayor of Edmonton and famed negotiator of the Rogers Place deal for the new arena downtown, showed up at public hearing at City Hall this week. This came completely out of left field, and he was speaking on behalf of a secret group that he would not yet name, promoting an alternative use for the former Coliseum building, which has been vacant since Rogers Place has superseded it. What What's going on here? Am I getting punked? Is this a Halloween trick? I thought it was April Fool's or something. I mean, the irony here is really rich. He said, quote, I believe we should preserve these buildings. I think it's an important part of our history. We should try to preserve it end quote. This is Mandel talking about the building that he actively and for many years advocated basically mothballing so that we could build a new arena downtown. And now he's back and he wants to save it. It's a very bizarre turn of events. 
Um, this group that he mentioned that he wouldn't name wants basically three to four months to come up with a business plan. He argued that, you know, what's another 90 days or 120 days? It's not like council's going to tear it down in that time anyway, which is probably true. But by bringing this conversation back, he's reopening questions that, frankly, I thought we had long settled. And, uh, and we were moving toward the point at which the building would be demolished. It reverted to the city of Edmonton. They permanently closed the facility and they're gearing up to demolish the building, which was determined to be cheaper than doing anything else with it. And this came up at a public hearing for uh, the exhibition lands plan, which doesn't envision having the Coliseum as part of that future at all. I think probably the secret group that he's working with is the Save the Downtown Airport Collective. You know, they just want to get the planes going in and out of downtown again. To my understanding of the agreement, completely not permittable. Like the agreement when Rogers Place was constructed was that the Coliseum could not be repurposed for sports or entertainment. I'm not wrong about that, right? No, you're absolutely right. And administration basically said that, that there is an agreement that we can't use this for any sports or entertainment purposes. So, you know, Mandel talking about potentially using it for kids sports or or using it for volleyball or track and field or anything, it doesn't matter. Those things are prohibited by the agreement. The agreement that Mandel had a huge hand in negotiating. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he knows this probably better than anyone, which is why it's both curious and particularly fascinating that he would come back and bring this up and, and try to go against that agreement. I understand that uh, late today, what council basically approved was requesting a memo back from administration on legal advice about that agreement and uh, a report quote, with respect to the potential for adaptive reuse of all buildings on the site. Essentially saying, yes, we want to get some greater clarity about this, even though I'm not sure what information they're missing here. Mandel's such a confusing character to me because he seems to be content to retire and then just every couple years pops back up in an inexplicable way to get some headlines, but not stick around. So... He retired. You thought he was done as mayor of Edmonton. He had been seceded by Don Iveson and ready to move on. And then he shows up and gets appointed health minister by then Premier Prentice. And that was weird, but he never managed to hold his seat as an MLA and sort of passed out, you know, ready to move on, ready to go back into retirement, spend some time with his grandchildren and his wife. And then he shows up and inexplicably is named the Alberta party leader with some weird baffling takes like, you know, let's install a driverless car dedicated lane on the QE2. Let's have Alberta do its own income tax remittance. It was all very weird. And then, of course, the Alberta party lost and he disappeared again. And then like Beetlejuice, he shows up at council meeting <laughs> trying to revise his previous agreement for Roger's place in the Coliseum, not only revising it and changing it, but not actually having a plan. He showed up and said, we're thinking about making a plan to do this thing. Can you just let us do that? Why? What is going on here? What am I missing? I mean, that was kind of the argument I think some would argue that the Cates group made to council. 
we want to build this new arena. Just let us go and do it. Uh, so maybe he's just trying his hand at a previous tactic to, at city council. I'm not too sure, but I don't get it. Maybe he's got some other reason for coming back into the news. Maybe he's supporting or working with somebody who's thinking of running for council or, or for mayor in the upcoming election. Maybe he just legitimately wants to save the building and feels bad about, you know, being the reason that it now sits empty. Who's to say? We'll see what his plan is in the future. If it works, it works. Something that we're hoping works by 2021 is the Valley Line Southeast, which running a little bit behind schedule, but right on schedule is its extension to West Edmonton Mall and Lewis Farms, the Valley Line West, and the city released an update this week. Yeah, they've decided who the winning proposal is to build the line, the Valley Line West LRT. And it's a consortium of companies called Marigold Infrastructure Partners. It's made up of companies that probably you've not heard of, uh, except for Stantec, uh, Colas, Parsons, Standard General, Frankel Architecture, Fastenep, and of course, Stantec. I'm pretty sure Standard General makes one of the light bulbs in my house. Oh, there you go. Uh, the city administration in, in this news release basically said this is a good thing, this is a positive thing, um, but of course we know that it hasn't been smooth sailing on this project and that the procurement process has been actually going on for quite a while now and they previously had three shortlisted teams, two of which backed out, and so the city basically had to start over this year. And the winning consortium now, this Marigold Infrastructure Partners, won an updated uh, process that removed the requirement to provide the light rail vehicles, which they're going to do separately. From Bombardier, if we're being real, right? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Yeah, this was announced by the city as a big just like the Grote Road Bridge that we talked about last week, a big hurrah, look at us, we did it, isn't this great? But it's because it failed and they adjusted the requirements to be easier because no organization wants to work with Bombardier, who across Canada is failing to deliver LRT cars in a timely manner and is sinking consortiums. Is that like a fair read of the situation? I think that's a very plausible explanation for this series of events. I mean, certainly administration wouldn't put it in those terms, but you're probably not far off the truth there, Troy. Upcoming, they've finalized a uh, consortium with Marigold, who's going to build this P3. I know the P3 for Valley Line Southeast was this big 500-page monster with TransEd. Is there something like that finalized with Marigold? Not yet. So this announcement is that they've selected Marigold to be the proponent, but now they're in final discussions for you know what that agreement ultimately looks like. The plan is for construction to begin next year in 2021. So they're aiming to have that discussion and that agreement finalized by the end of the year. If that all happens on schedule, construction starts next year, it would take about five or six years to complete. And the timeline to me is really interesting because if they don't hit that, we're getting awfully close. I know I keep talking about it, then we'll be getting close to the municipal election. And if we have a new council or a new mayor or a combination of them that is, let's say, not as thrilled about the Valley Line West, uh, having these agreements in place and and presumably including some of the penalties that they would have included in, say, the Valley Line Southeast agreement will make it less likely that this project can go off the rails. Felix, pardon the pun. 
because uh, it might just cost more to cancel it than to continue to build it. So there's a bit of time pressure, uh, I think, because of the political nature of this and because some councillors and people in the public have been very, very critical um, about the Valley Line West. We recently, as we reported on about a month ago, got that final bit of approval from the province. So the city can move forward this, with this now and they need to get this agreement done so that we can actually start construction. I share your sentiments that maybe we want this ironclad contract to prevent, you know, reneging. But then in my heart of hearts, I think of oil by rail or a super lab that had already started construction. And perhaps ironclad punitive contracts aren't quite enough to stop the machine if it really doesn't want something to happen. That's a great point. I mean, it's very true. There's uh, just as with the Coliseum, just because we have an agreement in place doesn't mean we can't potentially go back on that, I suppose. But it's about making it less likely for that to happen, I think. And I think in many ways, this is the last thing I'll say about the election. I think the next election will be somewhat a referendum on LRT. You definitely have opponents of Don Iveson's visions saying LRT is the critical failing of Don Iveson's vision. We need to stop building LRT. Or we need to switch to BRT or any number of other things. Right. So I think when we litigate that in public with, you know, a real mayoral race, not Don Iveson and a clown car of others, <laughs> perhaps we can finally put that question to bed referendum style. Sesco on 99th Street, the former warehouse, will be putting up beds for some homeless residents uh, in the winter months. Uh, we talked about it in previous episodes that a temporary shelter space was going to be spun up. And we've talked about this a couple times. It's close to home. It's nice to talk about, you know. Sometimes I have to talk about things all across the city. This one's a few blocks from my house. And you heard some updates this week that gave you a bit of pause. That's right. When we spoke about this uh, two episodes ago, you described it as, you know, the, the model tor uh, type of project. There was no really anti-project NIMBYism going on. The community seemed to be fairly open and welcoming about this temporary shelter. Dallas Bartell, the communications director for the Ritchie Community League, uh, had said that, you know, the board for the community league hadn't discussed the proposal, but was optimistic about it, basically said they understood the need for it. You said you hadn't heard anything negative. And then I saw this article at Global News, and it quoted Alan Bolstad, the former city councillor, who is the civics director with the Ritchie Community League. And he said, quote, we have mixed feelings about it at this point, end quote. And then I kept reading and it started to mention Mike Nickel. And of course, Mike Nickel was complaining about this. And then he pulled a McKean and said that he wasn't consulted. So I'm like, Troy, what's going on? I thought this was a positive reaction in the neighborhood. One thing I'll say on that is, you know, mixed does mean positive and negative. So, you know, I might have just been selecting the positive. But this reminds me, it's topical because speed limits were on the episode this week, of a couple years ago when we were really pushing for the core zone and for specific speed reductions. And I was talking with leagues in the neighborhood. And one of the issues we had with the core zone committee was getting Richie on board. Richie seemed on board with the idea of lower speed limits. But when we spoke to council, we couldn't just get a letter from Richie confirming it. We had Alan Bolstad, civics director, come to council and his comments tepid at best there was a lot of yeah mm. eh, but cars might slow down and 30 that's probably too much let's maybe go for a compromise hemming and hawing his way through it right and i think 
there's a concept called quarterbacking where you have one person that dominates the conversation. It's the vocal minority. And I think, like you mentioned, Alan Bolstead, a former city councilor and civics director with the Ritchie Community League, there's a bit of deference on civic issues there. So, you know, maybe the league might believe one thing, but when a civics director who has been a city councilor before and understands the bureaucratic process and the politics of compromise and that sort of thing, he might default to a, hmm, let's see both sides approach. Right. And that's my experience. Just like how community leagues don't represent the community because EFCL membership is so abysmally low in proportion to the population. All community leagues. So too do I think that an individual board member of a community league does not necessarily represent the entire board of the community league. And having sat on community league boards, even when you disagree with another board member, you're like, it's 8 p.m. I want to go home and eat some ice cream and watch some TV. I'm not going to have an argument with this other volunteer across the (laughs) table. Whatever, rubber stamp, move on. I suspect there's some of that happening. Well, I think your explanation does make sense. And uh, that does seem like a plausible explanation for why this article now makes it seem less rosy than it once did. Alan Bolstad, if you're listening to this, just recognize that your approach is fueling Mike Nichols' unnecessary appearances in the media about these issues. Because he unnecessarily appeared in the media and he acknowledged the crisis amid the pandemic, but you can't use this crisis to just override a fair and open process to solve a problem, end quote. Which sounds a lot like... Yeah, I agree with this, except I disagree with everything about this. Yeah, it's like I found this one way to drive a wedge into this, so I'm going to do that. And like we said in previous episodes, consultation is the poison pill of affordable housing and of shelter spaces. Consultation is done. We know we need these. We know we need these everywhere. No one in the city is going to say, please come in my backyard. And when they do, there's already stuff in the backyard. In general, we have to accept that, you know, some people will get these in their backyard and some communities may be uncomfortable with it initially. But in general, when these places are managed well, they're usually a boon to the community rather than a tax. What is a tax, though, is toll roads, which the UCP has tabled new legislation to allow them to dole out the tolls everywhere. Uh, Yeah, the new legislation tabled in the legislature, Bill 43, the Financing Alberta's Strategic Transportation Fast Act. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did they really do that? They really did that. Yeah. We're not the U.S., okay? We don't need cutesy acronym names for everything. Tell me what the FAST Act is. The FAST Act would allow for tolls only on new or expanded infrastructure and only as long as Albertans are consulted and alternative free routes are available. So this isn't toll roads to, you know, help deal with congestion or to make it less likely for people to choose the car over other modes of transportation. This is ostensibly a way to fund Uh, infrastructure projects when we're not having a lot of revenue in this province lately. Briefly, we'll talk about this, that, you know, tolls are a good idea. I've been on record in the past. And like you said, they can control congestion. They can convince vehicles to move to other modes of transportation. And importantly, it's a user fee. You know, most of our biggest line items in the municipality in terms of infrastructure, in terms of operations, are managing our publicly subsidized road network and vehicle travel, which we've lamented in the past. Toll roads generally help with that. This is not really that, though. This is just funding for a couple bridges because, critically, 
I don't believe this allows municipalities to implement toll roads. It's only when the government wants to build a new infrastructure project in specific narrow circumstances. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, they said that it could be anywhere, though, that there's a little capital investment. So the QE2 or Deerfoot Trail in Calgary, which they've talked about expanding, they could potentially use uh, toll to help fund that. So it might bleed into municipalities a little bit. This week, Rachel Notley used that as a sort of driving point. The idea that, you know, expanding the Deerfoot in Calgary, you could have tolls on the new lanes, but the same number of public lanes must continue to exist. The NDP used that as, well, the UCP wants to tax your commute. These tolls could be everywhere. Isn't that a good thing, though? Right, right. I mean, she used this to say that Jason Kenney lied, and I get why she wants to do that for political points, but it's the wrong approach. This would be a good thing if we had tolls. I understand that opposition's going to opposition, but very occasionally a wrong clock strikes right. Maybe the UCP isn't doing this for the right reasons, but this is a right thing. Probably something that we should encourage. So we'll watch this closely. I suspect we're not going to see it like you or I might hope, where we can Mm -hmm. get a user fee on roads. This is basically just for one bridge and then the next bridge and down the line. But it's a way of just shifting the tax burden to people that use it, right. which I think in general isn't really a bad thing for the taxpayer. Agreed. But you as a taxpayer have to pay taxes. And in these unprecedented times, you might need to consider hiring a chartered professional accountant, also known as a CPA, to help guide you through and jumpstart the recovery. With a CPA on your team, you can be confident that you will find the best solutions to even your biggest business problems. CPAs are trained to dig in and truly understand how an organization operates, where it's excelling, and how it can be better. For an inside look at how Alberta CPAs are supporting their clients through the pandemic, you can follow CPA Alberta on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn, and you can also visit cpaalberta.ca to find out more. And that's all for this week. I've been seeing in my feed that there's a couple new Taproot Presents episodes filtering on through. Yeah, this week, the newest uh, episode is all about Future Fields, which is a tech startup here in the city that is working on lab-grown meat, essentially. Uh, They don't make the meat itself, but they make the growth medium that all of these companies are using. So they're doing some really fascinating work around cellular agriculture. And uh, they spoke with our our managing editor, Emily Rendell-Watson, all about uh, pitching and the experience that they've had growing the business over the last year since they pitched at Startup TNT, the first investment summit. So it's a, a great episode to check it out. And we've got a few more still to come as we lead up to the, the next Startup TNT investment summit toward the end of November. Well, I do wish them success there because, you know, if we can get meat that's lab-grown or plant-based, then I can start using meats as the pun titles in each episode. And that just makes my job so much easier. So it opens up a whole new world. Yeah. (laughs) Kudos to the innovators in Edmonton. Uh, Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Hey, Troy from the Edit Bay in the future here. I noticed we talked about him in the episode, but we didn't say one specific thing. So to Counselor John D, this one goes out to you, you sweet, sweet friend of the podcast.